Welcome to the Art and Science of Success. I'm your host, Jonathan Brown. Now this 12-part podcast series has been created to help you make the most of the recovery opportunities, however long they last. In the last 12 years, I've worked with some of the world's top leaders, companies and teams to help them create success in highly challenging situations. And in that time, I've got to know some of the world's top practitioners and researchers into the toughest situations we can face. As we work to rebuild our businesses and even our communities, I wanted to offer some free resources and insights that I know help leaders because we use them every day helping our clients to deliver amazing results. So I asked them, what insights and ideas do you have that leaders can apply to help them survive and thrive whatever happens in the next few months or even the next few years? We have to find ways of inspiring our people to become even better. And if there was ever a time for you to do truly great work, to truly be your best more often, it's today. So I hope these podcasts will help you in some small way to create even more success for you and for those you care about. So my guest today is Dr. Chet Richards. Um, Chet um, is now retired, but he was an adjunct professor of strategy and quantitative methods at Kennesaw State University. He holds a PhD in mathematics and is also a retired Air Force Colonel. And he's a founding fellow of the Lean Systems Society. Now Chet's written four books. His most popular is Certain to Win, The Strategy of John Boyd Applied to Business. It's been in print for 17 years and is currently being translated into quite a few other languages, including Japanese. Um, now, one of the reasons why Chet is on the podcast today is that Chet was an associate and friend of a man called Colonel John Boyd for over 20 years from the 1970s, up, right up until John's death in 1997, and has contributed to many of his most significant works, including The Conceptual Spiral and The Essence of Winning and Losing. Um, now, the philosophy of John Boyd is something that, that literally changed my life. And so one of the things I'm very keen to is to share that with as many people as possible, um, not the illumination for myself, but just how it can help you deal with dynamic and challenging situations. So Chet, it's wonderful to see you again. Oh, thank you very much. Good to see you again, too. So Chet, just, uh, just to begin with then, um, who was um, John Boyd and, and what did you do with him? Basically, uh, he started out as a fighter pilot, um, got into the absolute very tail end of the Korean War, like the last month of it. Um, he is credited, I believe, I think Corm found this out in the records, uh, with, with half a kill, which meant that there were two Americans involved in the, uh, in the shoot down, and so they each got credit for, uh, uh, for half. The war ended after that. Uh, he came back to Las Vegas, to uh, Nellis Air Force Base, where he was first a student and then an instructor pilot at the Air Force Fighter Weapons School, as it was called at the time, now the, uh, um, the Air Force Weapons School, because they do all weapons, now bombers and, and uh, attack aircraft. But at that time, it was the, uh, it was the graduate school for air-to-air combat. And uh, he became an instructor there, stayed there for gosh, was that, six years. Boyd Hall at, um, at Nellis is named after him. He got, he picked up the name 42nd Boyd because he had a standing bet that he could defeat any, any new coming pilot um, in 40 seconds. And to make it even more fun, he would start out with the student behind him. Um, he could only do this this trick one time because once he did it, people figured it out and it wouldn't work again. But again, Quorum talks about all of that. But it, it used that's where he discovered that the ability to lull somebody into uh, into a way of thinking, an orientation, as he uh, as he later uh, called it, and then immediately spring something on them that they uh, that they can't handle, and then immediately exploit that while they're still confused. 
uh, is a, um, a, a winning tactic in virtually any form of one-on-one -on -one type conflicts, which we're thinking the martial arts, gunfights, air-to-air uh, -air combat, um, chess actually, believe it or not, actually turns out to, uh, to, um, to fit that pattern. Um, you're a martial artist, so so you uh, you have a big leg up already on the uh, on the void philosophy. So what Boyd figured is okay. First, we'll apply it to uh, to fighter aircraft. Well, his first shot at doing that was a thing called energy maneuverability, and energy maneuverability is based on the thrust of the aircraft minus its drag divided by its weight. Thrust depending on how much power the engine is putting out, and that depends on the altitude it's at, the airspeed it's at, among other things. So the high, if you go too high, it doesn't suck in enough oxygen, doesn't produce enough thrust. If it's too slow, it's inefficient, doesn't produce enough thrust. Um, and, and, and but there are areas in there where where your airplane is producing the maximum amount of power that it's uh, that it's going to produce. And then you could do the same thing for enemy aircraft. We had access at that time to quite a few enemy aircraft that. Um, uh, we had acquired through a variety of sources. And then you could overlay those two and you could say, okay, in this altitude and airspeed combination, I have the advantage. And in that altitude and airspeed combination and areas around it, the opponent has the advantage. Therefore, what I want to do is try to operate in where I have the advantage. And after, uh, after John retired, he got a small contract from NASA um, to, to investigate why the models, including his own, they did, they could predict a lot of air-to-air -air combat, and there's nothing wrong with them. What they predicted was okay, but it was incomplete. And it finally, right at the end, it, it dawned on him what the incompleteness was, and he summarized it in a very famous statement right at the end of that uh, presentation. And there's a copy of it also out on my website, by the way. And all the stuff that's on the website is available for free download, incidentally. Uh, and that statement is, let's see if I can get it correctly, he who can handle the fastest rate of change survives. All right. He who can handle the fastest rate of change wins. He put that at the end of his paper that he published just before he published Destruction and Creation in the fall of 1976. He had retired a year earlier in August of 75. And one of in the examples that he used in that paper, he used the wife's, I think it's wife 16, wife 17 fly-off. He used the um, F-86 versus the big 17 in Korea. And then he used the Entebbe raid, which had just taken place, the Israeli raid in Uganda to, rec to, uh, uh, to rescue a hostages that had been taken by Idi Amin. And he recognized that it was essentially the same thing. The Israelis had created conditions that the Ugandans didn't understand and couldn't comprehend. And by the time they did figure it out, everybody was on the airplane and gone. And, but, but Boyd kept finding the same thing. It all had to do with rates of change, of creating conditions that generated ambiguity, confusion, converting that into deception, surprise, playing ambiguity and surprise, until you finally got the opponent into a situation that they couldn't handle. Now, there's a couple of, uh, there's a couple of things there. How do you know he can't handle it? Well, that's where, that, where one of those English words recently borrowed from German, Fingerschwitzengefühl, uh, comes comes from. I've decided those are English words now, so I don't have to italicize and capitalize and use the umlaut like kindergarten, autobahn, blitzkrieg, you know. So um, and the idea was, well, it takes practice. So, so, sorry, Chet, just uh, just for those who who are not upon on German on the language, um, finger spits and fuller means is essentially fingertip intuition. That's no. where uh, that's a, a literal translation of the German fingertip feeling. But it means exactly what you said. 
it's, it's essentially it's essentially like your intuition is you're able to operate intelligently but almost unconsciously in a dynamic situation but the idea there is finger spritzing pool yeah it's like you said it's your brain says go that way do this now uh, uh, the brain says that guy is is confused and you're some of it's objective you're looking at things that they're doing they're uh, uh, they're abandoning positions for example uh, even before you've attacked them or they're attacking into heavy into the heaviest defenses and not and not uh, bobbing areas that that you have more lightly defended they're they're shelling empty fields uh, there's all kind of things a uh, lot more prisoners than you uh, than you uh, that you ordinarily take, indicating that morale is going down, perhaps. So you get these little indicators that that you may not even be able to explain consciously, but allows you to put them all together and say, okay, now is the time for me to attack in this area and uh, either hold or, or or do spoiling attacks or, uh, or or other things to pump up confusion and ambiguity uh, across the rest of the, the, the spectrum. And so finger spitting your food, uh, fingertip feeling. You just you've done it so much, you practice so much. You're you're out on the six sigma area of the curve that you can just you can just do it really well. That is something that Boyd Boyd was so um, impressed with it. It was so such an important part of his uh, philosophy that he starts his abstract uh, with it, and it's uh, the abstract starts off with something like, in order to survive in a in an unchanging, uncertain, and threatening world, it is imperative that we uh, that we make intuitive within ourselves the many uh, actions that we need to meet the exigencies of that world. I think that's that's very close. In other words, you got to make this stuff intuitive because if it's not intuitive, when the crunch comes and the other side is throwing uh, things at you and there's the usual confusion, you won't be able to use it. And the reason you won't be able to use it, it's very interesting. And John had, I think, an interesting insight there, too. He said the reason involves this idea of many non-cooperative centers of gravity. Uh, he had borrowed the term centers of gravity from, uh, from Clausewitz. Clausewitz used the term Schwerpunkt, which is, which is uh, often translated as centers of gravity. And oddly enough, Boyd used the term very, very closely to how Clausewitz used it, meaning it's that it's that thing within the enemy force that gives it cohesion, that allows it to... Uh, uh, allows it to function. So that was the idea. But John pointed out, and again, boring from the Germans, if you are so good that you can spot the the, uh, the one spot in the enemy system that if you took it out, uh, the enemy would disintegrate, then probably the enemy has a pretty good idea of it too. Either you're that or you're lucky and have a really stupid enemy. Uh, so what John said is the thing that really, there are, there are many things that, that that give it cohesion and particularly moral elements are very important. So you can attack those. And I would point out the recent Taliban uh, uh, assault in Afghanistan is a wonderful example of that. The Afghan army just decided not to fight. It's a total moral collapse. It didn't make any difference, you know, how many weapons they had or how many, how many hours of training. If they decided not to use it, the game is over. Uh, hence moral moral defeat. So, so you can you can defeat a side morally, and a way to defeat it morally, and again, using Afghanistan as an example, is get, get them arguing among, uh, the sides arguing among themselves. So you had the president who who now, as it turns out, gee, he was really corrupt. We didn't know that a week ago. Now all the people that were saying that were there were saying, oh, we hated him, we hated him. And it was sort of like Germans talking about Hitler in the summer of 1945. But uh, 
or you or you can you can split them up into non-cooperative centers of gravity by doing what John called operating inside their OODA loops. You can confuse them. And then what happens there is they split up into cliques and they begin arguing with each other about what's going on. A lot of that happened in the German uh, attack on France in 1940, very well, well documented. And while they're arguing among themselves, they're not coming up with effective countermeasures to what you're doing. And of course, you can, you can uh, split them up into non-cooperative centers of gravity physically. Uh, you can attack in multiple thrusts. You can penetrate in multiple places. And then the areas between the penetration there, of course, can't support each other. You can isolate the front echelons from their, from their support in the back. Uh, uh, through artillery, through air attacks, they're moving so fast that they don't that, that they don't know where you are. So it's possible to create these many non-cooperative centers of gravity morally, mentally, through through maneuver and physically. Hence Napoleon's favorite famous three to one. Um, and only it's really not three to one; it's really infinity to one. Because if the other side decides not to fight, then it doesn't make any difference. And, then, um, and the, the, sorry, Chen, the statement there. So this is most of my audience said have. I've got no military background. So that as as um Napoleon says, as I recall, is that the moral is to the physical as three is to one. That's something like that, is it? Yeah, and he puts that in his uh, his um, maxims of Napoleon, I think is it's is it's called Martin Van Crow quotes that in one one of his books. But that's really it's true in a way. And like John said, three to one, two to one doesn't really make any uh, you know, four to one, it may, but it's really a lot more powerful than that. Now, if the other side hasn't morally collapsed, if there's if they're just becoming um, uh, frightened or if they're just becoming discouraged, then you know maybe it's three to one, four to one. But it's an enormous, enormous uh, factor. Uh, again, because the other side, side for whatever reason decides not to use the capabilities that they have, then they their capabilities might as well be zero. So anyway, that's kind of a thing of John's. Uh, the whole point of don't don't fight a prepared enemy uh, on his strength unless you're doing it for deceptive purposes. But think in terms of um, splitting him into non-cooperative centers of gravity and using particularly the moral and and. He used the term maneuver, the idea of operating inside the Uru, the idea of using confusion and deception and exploiting these, because again, that will cause the other side to uh, start coming apart if they can't handle it. They'll start arguing among themselves, start splitting into cliques. The Air Force will want to bomb, you know, the Army will want to draft, and the, the Navy will want to sit offshore and help the Air Force bomb or something. I don't never figured out exactly what the Navy role is in, in Afghanistan. Seems like, or for that matter, in Vietnam, um, of, of the real action was a long way from the sea. But anyway, so that kind of I think will give you the flavor of what Boyd is all about. Well, and the the, the thing that um that drew drew me to it was a was a that drew me to Boyd was I came I came to Boyd through through Tom Peters and he made one comment um one or two comments in in one of his books um about a, a colonel who went to Europe and um the general that he was reporting to they're trying to improve um performance and training standards and the general said we haven't lost any any pilot in however many months or years um and Boyd's reply was was allegedly um general you need to kill more pilots <laughs> meaning that training has got to be much closer to reality than than they were currently getting so that they actually are they can compete in a in a genuinely life and death situation um, right and then and and the thing that that that, sh that shifted my whole awareness of of boy's work was your um encouragement to read boyd backwards because it, boyd starts off with 
how to win a war, right? With with the with the, the with patterns of conflict. Um, but he ends his his career with the essence of winning and losing, right? Which is how to win in a competitive situation. And I know some of us think, well, you know, am I really in a, am I really competing with anyone? It's like most of the time we are. Now, now for most of us, it isn't life and death. So I wonder if we can if we go through Boyd's key work. So we've got the last bit that he did was the essence of winning and losing. Is that right? That's and then we have the conceptual spiral. And then we have something called revelation, which is extraordinarily short. And then there's something called the abstract. And then he has the strategic game of question mark and question mark, which turns out to be the strategic game of isolation and interaction. And then we have organic design for command and control. And then we have his most, probably his most famous work, which is Patterns of Conflict, um, an extraordinary document on, on how, how, how forces win and lose wars. And then we have his, his almost academic paper, but on called Destruction and Creation. And so an amazing body of work. So in the time that we've got, I just wonder if we could, if we started off with, and, and just bearing in mind that the, the audience is, is non-military, so um, really are focused on your, your stuff in, in certain to win as much, if not more um, than that. What is the essence of what can, if a, a manager or a leader is looking at the essence of winning and losing, what could they take from that, from that paper that they could apply in a, in a peaceful slash you know, non-lethal competitive situation? Well, if you look at the essence of winning and losing, the first paragraph of the essence of winning and losing essentially repeats the abstract, which is we have to, we have, he called it an implicit repertoire, but it's the same idea of make intuitive within ourselves those, those things that we need in order to survive. And what he, what he added uh, via, after he wrote a Conceptual Spiral, which he has in there, is that we not only need this implicit reservoir, or we need to be able to to manage our implicit repertoire, add to it uh, as, as time goes on. Uh, and uh, you, you never really throw anything away, but you may, you, you may change your understanding, your, your emphasis uh, uh, of how you use things. Uh, so, so it's a two-part process. And then he says, gee, well, you know, in order, to, uh, in order to, uh, to do this, then he goes down to the list of things you need to be able to do. You need to be able to do analysis and thinking. And synthesis. No, you need to be able to see what happened out in the world, figure out uh, what went on, and then change your mental models. You know what you call orientation accordingly. So it's kind of it's it, to be simplistic. You have your orientation, which is which is a prefrontal cortex primarily. Although you just got to be careful drawing these artificial distinctions about brain tissue. But, but basically, yeah, it's the, the mental models that you have inside your brain that are making predictions about the future. Uh, and that's essentially your orientation. And your orientation is making predictions. You're trying things out in the real world, or maybe you're just making predictions and then observing. But based on what you learn, you're doing a couple of things. One of the things, you're correcting your mental model, but you're also, if you were trying an action out there and you decided, yeah, that action worked pretty well, you're now learning to use that action. Again, think about uh, the martial arts, the uh, moves that you use in judo. The first time you tried them, it was probably pretty, uh, pretty awkward. But after a while, they became intuitive. And it became intuitive to the point to where you began to employ them uh, without really without conscious thought because there wasn't enough time for conscious thought. Uh, you, had, you had practice and 
there was conscious thought going on, but you weren't saying, well, hold up, time out for a minute. Let me see. I've got these possible actions I could do in response to your last action. Huh? I'll do that one. You know, obviously that, that doesn't happen. John said no timeouts and more. Um, you know, so and, and check just to just to state, because there was there's something else that I did is in addition to the to the documents that we're going to be looking at is you got me on to Alan Watts's Dow the Watercourse Way, uh, which I know was one of John's favorite books. Mm-hmm. And the, the thing that really stands out for me there is the the interactive nature of of everything, basically, of any kind of competitive situation. If we're in close contact, then there's it's impossible to separate what you're doing and what I'm doing. And so yeah. this this idea of, of we, you know, we, we, we understand what's going on, we orient and then we decide and is that that's actually happening all at once. And I remember when you, you one of your statements in, in Certain to Win is that is that the actions of, of to observe, to orient, to decide and act, they're, they're distinctive, but not distinct in that they are not separate. And I think one of the things that I got from, from reading Alan Watts's book, literally at the end of redoing all of John's, John's work and your work as well, was the interactive nature of everything that, that Boyd said. Okay, uh, to get back to your question. So John said, we need this intuitive repertoire and we need a way to to manage it, to add to it, to 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 make actions that we're doing now to make them intuitive. Because if they're not intuitive, they're going to be difficult to use when uh, when we get into a, a, a fast moving, uncertain uh, situation. I know that. So that there's something that that Mike Wiley, um, the colonel who helped write write war fighting, said to me was that um, in a in a in the most difficult situations, you will revert back to your deepest habits. Mm. And so in that sense, is, and this is a learning I got in, in the whole thing about you cannot have a separate response to a stressful situation. It has to be your core response that you exactly. do most often, right? Imagine. Um, yeah, I mean, again, you know, you've, you've done this stuff, you know, that when you're in an actual conflict, an actual bout with somebody, uh, these actions have to flow very quickly from the other side's actions and anything else in the current situation, which becomes a, a, a symbiotic system between the two of you. And there's no timeouts, you know, you, you, you basically use what you brought to the fight. Now, even while you're doing that, but think about it, you are still learning from that fight. Uh, and you're learning things that you'll take with you into your training and then into the next fight. And, so and just, gets, to, sorry, just, just to make sure that our listeners can stay with us, Chet, is it so if some if we're talking, if you and I are talking about a fight, it could actually be a challenge or problem or, or stressful situation, right? I mean, in military terms, we've got we've got a fight fight. But actually, what we can talk about is anything that accelerates and and causes a stress response in us, we can see as a some form of of conflict or or challenge. Um, yeah. So if we can, if we, we'll we'll try and use those words ongoing. But if we are saying fight or battle, then it's really just well, you know, it could be a competitive situation that you've got um, an argument with a colleague or or supplier or customer, um, all those things, right? Is what happens when we're in a stressful situation. And that's what Boyd was talking about in the essence of winning and losing. Yes. And in fact, on the next page, well, at, at the bottom of the first page, he said, and to make all this happen, you need OODA loops. On the next page, he drew his own diagram of OODA loop. And it, it basically consists of two parts. One of them, the first case, everything goes to action. If it doesn't go to action, then, you know, don't worry about it. You know, a, a boy wasn't into mystical stuff. So everything goes to action. But there's two ways you can get to action. If you are actually engaged with somebody, for example, and you're using that intuitive or boy called it implicit, and John wasn't too, 
he tended to use implicit and intuitive uh, to mean the same thing. I use them slightly different. Intuitive is how, how actions are selected, how decisions are made. And, um, and implicit is how they're communicated. But anyway, be that as it may, most actions, when you're, when you're actually using them, flow directly from orientation via the implicit guidance and control loop. Or as Boyd said, emphasize imp implicit over explicit. When you're adding new repertoire or you're tweaking your ability to use your existing repertoire or you're, you're learning you're, how to handle new situations, that sort of thing, that's that circular OODA loop, which is basically just the scientific method. If you, if you go back to uh, a conceptual spiral, that's why I use hypothesis and test down there. And so, um, so what you have is all this, as you said, all this is happening at the same time. Sometimes you may be emphasizing the, the action, the, the using it part. And sometimes you may be emphasizing the learning part to be, to be kind of blunt about it. You're in about, or you're training or in the military, you're in a, you're in operations or you're training in operations. You're using the implicit uh, guidance and control loop. In training, you're using the OODA loop. Now, in fact, in both, you're using both of them, but the emphasis shifts back and back and forth. So even in the middle of a fight, you're still learning, even in the middle of operation, because that's what the, the after action reports and all that are for. Um, you know, what did we learn that? What did we get out of that kind of a kind of a thing? And then how are we going to change our operations uh, you know, to make us uh, smoother, faster, less friction, less entropy in the um, in the future? So uh, it's both very simple and very complex at the uh, at the same time, and that's the essence of winning and losing. That's it in a nutshell. And then just to, just as links to people, so if people have read um, Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, that implicit guidance and control is a much more evolved version of um, System One thinking, which is described by Kahneman just superficially as instinctive and emotional, um, and System Two is the slower, more deliberate stuff. So if you're thinking about a situation where you're trying to perform well, your system one is the stuff that you've learned and integrated and studied and, and practiced and practiced so that when it comes to it, you're able to, you're able to act intelligently, but incredibly quickly. And then the system two stuff is where you do your after action review, or you might do a, an exercise with your team just to go through a scenario. So for example, one of the things you might want to consider doing in business is say, well, if we go into lockdown again, um, how could we make it even better than before? And how can we make implicit and intuitive the measures that we cost us quite a lot the first, second or third time that we did it? Um, and so that's really what one of the things that we can we can look at there. And I can link people to a, a fabulous paper between um, Daniel Kahneman and Gary Klein, who I guess is one of the world's leading authorities, intuitive um, or recognition prime decision making, isn't he? Um, and they have a, a wonderful paper called, I think it's called A Failure to Disagree. Um, where they talk about when you want to be using decisions based on on system one or in this model implicit implicit or intuitive decisions and when you really need to be much more deliberate and, and take system two so so what we've got then Chet, we've just been looking at, at the essence of, of winning and losing and that then moves in, into possibly my my favorite paper that you got me onto which is the conceptual spiral because that for me is, is what I found probably most inspiring and, and most useful for, um, for John's work really. So I wonder if we could get into, into the conceptual spiral. Yeah, what conceptual spiral, uh, again, uh, again, moving back, uh, what conceptual spiral really did was first case is virtually nothing about war in it. A little bit of stuff maybe right at the front, but basically nothing about war. 
it's uh, it's it's all about how we how we add to our implicit repertoire, uh, i.e., of stuff that we can use in, in in real time. So, science, engineering, and technology is how those things affect our ability to thrive in uh, in the out in the real world. In other words, just doing just doing abstract mathematics is 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 fun. Um, and being an abstract mathematician earlier in my uh, in my career, it's a, it's a tremendous amount of fun when you think up and prove a new theorem and doing abstract. But it has about as much to do with surviving in the real world as doing crossword puzzles or 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 Sudoku, because that's essentially what mathematics is: is puzzle puzzle solving, thinking up and solving uh, puzzles based on a certain set of agreed upon fundamentals that are called call axioms. So, okay, we agree on these axioms now. Let's see what kind of really cool things we can deduce from it. That's not what Boyd's talking about. Boyd is concerned with the kind of stuff that we need to survive in a, uh, in a competitive environment, whether our survival depends to some extent on competition with, with other people that are trying to do the same thing. Um, and that immediately leads to what John called conflict, zero-sum game, in other words. And then the question is, how do you resolve that uh, or continue to resolve it uh, uh, in ways that you find acceptable? In other words, survive on your own terms, which he equated with uh, improving our capacity for independent action. And the Hutchins incident is exactly the same thing Toyota says. He says, you don't, Toyota says, you don't want to be like ships tossed around on a sea. You want to take control of your destinies. Maybe it's exactly the same thing. Uh, and uh, so the question is, how do you, how, what are some fundamentals for doing that? And so that's what he's really addressing. He says, it, and what the science, uh, uh, engineering, and uh, technology, and all that, what they're really addressing is how do you, how do you come up with these intuitive actions? You could think of them as arrows in your quiver. And you know you can sit and you can work on your arrow and you can polish the arrowhead and you can straighten the shaft and you can work on your bow and all that. And that's really cool. But when time comes, you get involved in engagement. You get, if, you're, if you reach back in your quiver and you're feeling around for, for the arrow and you pick it out and you drop it or you pick it up and it's the wrong one or you bring it out and it doesn't engage, it doesn't engage properly with your string. In the meanwhile, all this time is going on, you're being shot. So how so those arrows in your quiver really aren't useful if in trying to use them, you get yourself killed. So the question is, how do you add arrows to your quiver that you can actually use? And then how do you train yourself to use them? How do you train yourself to know which ones to use? And that's what conceptual spiral is all about. So you're right, it's an absolutely fundamental thing. What it does not really address too much on is how do you, is how do you actually use it? And the reason for that is that's highly dependent on the specific situation. But it, in whatever situation you're in, so if you say, okay, I'm going to use Toyota production system, all right, Toyota production system has two you know, foundations, Jadoka and, uh, and, the, and the pull, the Kanban uh, system. Okay, how do you actually use those? How do you actually develop those so that your factory runs smoothly? And when things interrupt it, disrupt it, you can fix those real quick and get back to normal and learn from the results. That's in a business setting what he's talking about. So if you're, for example, uh, uh, in a work from home setting, okay, the question is, are you, are you accomplishing the things that you wanted to accomplish? Are you, are you turning out the products that, uh, that you want to turn them out uh, at the quality level that you want and within the time that you want? And if not, why not? What can you try? What kind of things can you do to make it, to make it work better? That's conceptual, conceptual spiral. Now, 
the one thing that runs all the way through it is the one thing that you're doing with all this creating kind of good stuff and arrows in your quiver is you're really creating novelty. And that makes sense. You're doing this to create something new. There's no reason creating something that's a, you don't need the conceptual spiral to turn out one, one copy of an arrow after another after another. What you need the conceptual spiral to say, hmm, okay, I've got a triangular arrowhead now. Suppose I had a flat arrowhead. What would happen? Suppose I made the, the, uh, the fins on it a little longer, a little shorter. Suppose I put a little twist in it, you know, that kind of kind of good thing. And hey, here's a and so I like the twist. Well, what's the easiest way to manufacture the twist? Do I bang on the ends? Do I try to cast them? Do I follow? You know, that's conceptual spiral and learning from the results and trying it and, and doing it over and over again until you can just you know, you reach in, you grab the right arrow, you pull and you fire all in one smooth, in one smooth motion. That's what conceptual spiral is, uh, is all about. And it was really one of John's great insight was it all rests on novelty. It really is all the creation and uh, employment of novelty, doing something new, doing something the other side doesn't expect, doing something that will delight the customer, that kind of a, that kind of a thing. And in a way, it's getting better at what you're already doing, but that's not the real key. The real key is how do you do new stuff? How do you add to your repertoire? And how do you add your repertoire in ways that are actually going to affect the bottom line? Because that's really what we're all talking about here. And explicit which now we can move back a little bit more, explicit ways of correct, uh, correcting your orientation uh, become very important in this, um, which is why things like after action reports, which is why I um, properly employ doctrine that doesn't become dogma, but that, that documents what we think is the best current state of the art, but you get rewarded for adding to it, like the, in the Toyota standard work. Um, and, and I don't know if you're uh, familiar with Isaac Asimov, you know, the foundation, which is being made now, you know, I guess what, by Apple. And, uh, but the idea was there to get promotion, you had to add to this big hideous model that they had. Uh, you had to, you had to make a contribution to it. And that's, that's what we're talking about. Uh, that's what we're talking about here. So um, you need explicit ways to say, gee, what we're doing now isn't quite right and be able to fix it. And, it and in organizations that's extremely hard to do because people take positions uh their careers become attached to things that they built earlier in their career and now they don't want to let uh, they let you know they don't want to let go of it um and i think that's that's maybe wired into human dna because it seems to affect every organization after a while defending what you did last year becomes the most important thing uh, and I, know, I think in one of your one of your books you talk about if you give um or one of your talks you're talking about just giving away your technology to the competition um, well, I think that's a tom peters idea you said okay. yeah yeah if you're so good at innovation then what you should be doing is as soon as you innovate license it immediately your competition it'll do two good things for you one it'll make you some money and two it will uh it will make the competition brain dead. And furthermore, the competition, the bean counters in the competition, they're going to say, why are we wasting all this money on R&D? We can just buy it, you know, what we need from these folks over there. And uh, so and I, I think it was a brilliant insight that Tom, you know, that Tom made. Um, or keep it for two or three years, but have it in there so that your goal of every new thing is to, is to sell it and use that money to come up with something else. So your focus is on making a system that comes up with new things, not on milking the stuff that you already built for as long as you can, because that's a formula for going out of business. That's the marginal line 
uh, uh, mentality. You know, okay, I wonder, uh, something in conceptual spirals, just could you just talk just a little about mismatches and, and why they're actually, why they can be a very good thing? Well, that takes us uh, both in the conceptual spiral and into strategic game. Without mismatches, um, you don't know that you're orient uh, whether you're, you don't know how accurate your orientation is. What probably happens if you're not seeing any mismatches is not that the mismatches aren't there, it's that you're not seeing them. Uh, you're not making predictions that can be that can be actually be tested out in the real world. You're dealing in platitudes, that that sort of thing. Now we're not talking about here saying, okay, we want to improve sales by you know a 15% next year. Um, that that approach has got all all kinds of problems with it, which I think I, I talk about to link them certain to uh, certain to women. I think now, which has become pretty pretty well uh, pretty well recognized, uh, the uh, the idea there is we're we're making a prediction that, for example, if we lower prices by five percent, we'll sell ten percent more, and our bottom line will go up by six percent. Okay, that's a prediction. We're not saying our goal is six percent. We're saying if we do this, then the result's going to be uh, doing that. Okay, now the now you try it. The, the, uh, what you then need to do is actually spot and see if it happens. So you're saying, well, why wouldn't I see it? Well, if you told your sales force, you know, we want you to go out and sell 10% more, it's quite odds are very good. They'll go out and sell 10% more. And you will, um, you'll run into what's called Goodhart's Law, that idea that uh, a measure when it becomes an objective is no longer a valid measure. People will gain it. So it's really, really, really difficult to understand what's really going on in the external world. Uh, I can't, I can't overemphasize that enough. Which, and it's impossible to do only with inside your own organization because of these social factors we just talked about. You know, Deming talked about that. Profound knowledge is 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 knowledge from the outside. It's external. It's people from the outside telling you stuff and you actually listening to it and, and not becoming defensive about it, but understanding. As and late Andy Grove said, you know, only the paranoid survive, and he was he was absolutely right on that uh, on that score, in in the sense that only people that don't drink their own bathwater uh, that have specific mechanisms in place for ensuring that they uh, you know that they don't. Um, but it's just it's it, it does appear to be wired into the human brain that things that that agree with our current orientation produce pleasure. You know they produce dopamines. They they otherwise they otherwise uh, you know energize the uh, the pleasure circuits and things that disagree with them fire up the amygdala and other bodies inside the brain that produce uh, discomfort, fear, doubt. They fire up the sympathetic nervous system, that sort of thing. So it just naturally we gravitate over to rewarding the people that are telling us what we want to hear, and it's just. You know so hard not to do that oh yeah yeah and you know i i'm wondering if if well i mean we'll be moving into this but the, the whole area why cohesion and and trust is so important so that people feel safe enough to 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 actively seek out mismatches and surprises um right. and i know just even just to, just to yeah and, and one of the things that that's that's most concerned me in the last 18 months well even no last five years really but accelerated during covid is that is that different sides of the argument of of what's the best action for all of us to do right now have been shutting down any sense of mismatch with their, with their view. Um, and even to the point of, of deliberately trying to exaggerate what they found. So they're actually now deceiving other people with, with their findings, um, which is a profoundly challenging situation for us to, for us to work through. 
Exactly. And that gets us now back into patterns of conflict in a way, because there are organizations that at least for some short period of time have been able to overcome this. They've essentially, they've been able to reduce the entropy in their system. The entropy has, has simply mean the energy that's in their system that's not available for doing work, primarily because they split into many non-cooperative centers of gravity and that energy is going within into arguing with each other. But it is possible to reverse entropy if you bring in energy from the outside. And that, that's what Boyd was trying to say, what Demon was trying to say. And that gets into the mutual, to the mutual trust part. Remember, mutual trust has to be built over periods of time of working together under conditions of stress and uncertainty and of seeing who can handle it and seeing who can't and knowing what everybody's uh, uh, capabilities are. And as Musashi said, using people according to their capabilities. Remember, he has the carpenter analogy at the end of book one, I believe it is. And I put the gardener analogy into a certain win. As far as I know, it's the only analogy in certain win. I try very hard to keep analogies out. But, uh, but that's, that, that's what we're talking about with, with Einheit, uh, another English word recently born from the German, which has the connotations of mutual trust, but it also means cohesion. It also means those that we, that we have. You, there's a group of people with, with whom you have Einheit. And those are the ones that you go over the go over the trenches for. Those are the those are the members of our team. And then the rest of the world is outside the boundary. Now that's 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 very simplistic, but you kind of get the idea. Within the within our group, within the group of people that you have Einheit with, then you can use those other attributes of the uh, of the climate that we talked about. Uh, a finger spitzing a fuel, of course. Auftrag's top teach, Schwerpunk, and a behindikite more English words recently born from German that are all in certain wind, except for the Hindic height, and that's in my paper, Boyd's Real Oodle Loop. Anyway, so that's the idea is we, we build over the years by working together and essentially under fire uh, uh, a group of people with whom we have this kind of relationship. Hmm. Um, and it's 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 been done many times, but it's it, it is... It's extremely difficult to do, I think, particularly in an environment, and this is just theorizing on my point, that's focused on next quarter's bottom line because that's how the top people in the company are going to get paid, uh, bonuses and, and, and things like that, because uh, now it all becomes do whatever it takes in order to, in order to meet these uh, objectives, not do what pumps up Einheit, even though that may mean doing things this year that don't look so good to the bottom line so that next year will sort of but constantly improving your organization um and that's it, initially that was the, the function the stated function of toilet production system each year we're going to get better depending on the external environment our numbers may fluctuate up and down but each year we're going to be better so we can handle the uh, the good times really well and we can survive the bad times and uh, I just, and I'm, I'm certainly not the first person that pointed out that short-term focus on the bottom line uh, makes it very, very difficult to do that. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. So, so just on, just to just to wrap up then um, the conceptual spiral. One of the things that I particularly loved, and, I, and and coming back to it again, it really stood out to me more. And listening to some of your other work was 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 Boyd talks about a conceptual spiral for. Um, you know, producing change via novelty, but there's also those concepts of exploration, discovery, innovation, thinking, okay. doing, achieving, and all those things. But he also talks about a conceptual spiral for generating insight, imagination, and initiative, which is a paradigm for survival and growth. 
Um, I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about Insight Imagination Initiatives. I know how important that is through the whole of, of your work and through, through boys. On the other hand, you should be very, very suspicious of lists that all start with the same letter. So what can I, what can I tell you? Yeah, boy, kind of got poetic there. And he would he'd call you up at night. He'd read all these lists to you. Well, what about this? Well, what about that? I tried to tell him, you know, it's, it's, I don't really think that's the important thing here. I, the idea about the conceptual spiral is, is essentially adding to your ability to operate intuitively in an uncertain world, which requires your ability to, to generate something that the uh, that your opponents or in a case of business customers don't uh, you know don't expect novelty in other words, and yeah inside imagination those are all good things I mean you can't argue against uh, you know against any of them whether you generate those with a conceptual spiral or not uh, or whether you need those in order to to operate a conceptual spiral. Uh, you know, it's kind of like angels on the head of a pen. So what I suggest people do with that chart is read it over, think about them. And if you get something out of it, great. I got to be honest with you, that page didn't do anything at all for me. <laughs> Maybe because I was too involved in its, uh, in its creation. Um, John wrote it in 1991, 1992. I mean, we spent hours where he would go through these three things, you know, back and over. And he was very proud of it. So, so uh, just, to make, just to make explicit my implicit encouragement then, um, it was really about. I, I heard you you talk about the importance that 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 speed is not as important as initiative. Oh well, the, the two go together. Um, initiative, of course, has has been a, a, a key factor of military doctrine for years and years and years. It's been a, a key part of army doctrine ever since I first joined the army back in 1965 as an ROTC cadet. Uh, initiative is, uh, and, 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 and Boyd continued that. Boyd, in fact, said the question is not who's on offense or who's on defense, it's who's got the initiative and who doesn't. And he actually defined operating inside the OODA loop as roughly synonymous with who's got the initiative. Because if you have the initiative, now you are expanding your, uh, your capacity for independent action. You can now do things uh, that the other side now has to react to you on. And of course, the idea there is then you do something else while they're you know, while they're, you observe their reaction, you're leading them to where you want them to be. Uh, Musashi has a, uh, a concept called enemy, uh, commander, commander commands the troops, and by the troops, he means the enemy troops. Uh, and Boyd said the same thing. It's really when you're operating inside the other side, it's really like you're, you're, you're controlling both sides of that, of that symbiotic relationship that we talked about. And you're using time, which obviously related to speed, um, because you don't want to give the other side time to figure out what's what's going on. Um, and if you see that they're that, that they've taken the bait, that, that they've been deceived, once if you spot that in time, then you can continue reinforcing that deception. Um, and if you spot that they haven't taken the bait, then you probably don't want to try to 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 you know to act on that. In other words, if we had picked up that Hitler had saw through our our, our deceptive uh, plan, you know, uh, through the Pont de Calais, and we're really going to land in Normandy, um, and he had and he so he had really bulked up Normandy and 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 denuded Pont de Calais, we might have uh, done D-Day quite a bit differently if we had done it at all. But we were, but through our intelligence, we knew he had that he had swallowed the. Uh, he swallowed the hook there and uh, had kept significant forces to the north of, uh, of, of Normandy. So that's the kind of things we're talking about here uh, is being able to, to sense how your, how your, um, 
how your actions are affecting the other side and be able to do that while there is still time to do something about it. Because given time, the other guy will figure it out. And that's why speed is, so it's the, it's, if you say it's, it's the speed of what's going on inside your, your head, but it's not doing the same things, just trying to do them faster. That's a, that's another fallacy uh, too. It's your speed comes from, as the Japanese like to talk about cutting out waste, not doing things that you don't need to do or figuring out paradigms for lack of a better word that accomplish what you want to accomplish, but without these these extraneous activities and of course the pull type production system is a great example of that because it completely does away with the centralized uh, operations control function in in place of cards that various shops hand out to each other and much simpler much quicker much more accurate and a lot cheaper on, on top of it all and so the that that combine idea uh has, has now spread to a bunch of other things other than just the factory and proven to be uh, enormously successful in those areas too so that's what that's the idea here is it's 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 speed in the sense that you are you are more aligned with what's going on in the external world than your competition is. And your orientation is giving more accurate predictions of what's going to happen. So you can then act on those predictions while in that period of time, while your predictions are accurate. Um, and I think we see that in business and in, in product introduction, new service introduction, things like that a lot. Um, and Apple, of course, uh, become extremely good at that. Not everything Apple tries, of course, is a huge success. You may, you may remember the Mac Cube, but uh, but they very quickly killed that off and went on to the next thing. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, they learned from that and uh, you know and went on. That's that conceptual spiral, you know, operating down in there. So, I guess that's one of the things is in an organization if there isn't sufficient um, mutual trust or, or or shared focus on the on the main focus. Then people can get get over attached to their little bit of the of the mission, can't they? Whereas I think oh. with organizations like when you know when when Steve Jobs came back to Apple, one of the things I think he did was to reinvigorate that that esprit de corps or the you know the moral the moral passion that those guys had about what they were doing and why they were doing it. So that if your if your work got canned, then actually that's going to strengthen the company. So you know you can still get rewarded for it and make sure people do, and then you move on to the next thing, right? Exactly. The company's not going to fire you on, um, uh, for that as long as you did as long as you, you did as good a job as could be done as again as quickly as possible there because it's and it's not the speed of going through the loop because I don't know what going through orientation would mean, but it does have something to do with how accurate your orientation is. And since the world is changing, it has something to do with how long it takes you to, to understand that change and um, and you'll be able to exploit it. And so, yes, speed is important, but it's important in kind of almost a, a mystical, but really not mystical. I mean, it's just kind of obvious that if your model of, of, uh, is making bad predictions, then you may have problems. You want to spot that as soon as possible and, uh, and try to fix it. So, and you fix it by trying things and learning from the results. You don't, not by somebody from the top coming down with, okay, you know, this is what we're going to do now. This is the way the world really works because there's nobody that smart. Uh, you know, on top of your organization. So uh, the world is fast to uh, too complex for that sort of thing. And that's one of the, the cool things about, uh, oh God, what's his name? I can't remember his name now. The, uh, the, um, the economist who wrote the book, uh, 
subtitled errors of socialism. He just pointed out that there's no central, there's no central uh, mind that is so smart that it can comprehend. So really the conceptual spiral is the only way to, to comprehend it. And oddly enough, at the same time, be able to help shape it. So, because if you're throwing things out in the environment learning problem, the environment's learning from you at the same time. So anyway. Are you talking yeah. about Hayek? Is that the-, the... Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Hey, I'm coming up on 75. I'm lucky if I remember my own name. <laughs> your name's Chet. Um, so just to just to summarize on the, on the conceptual spiral, as pointed at the end of this, is that is that in order to deal with an uncertain, ever-changing, unpredictable world of winning and losing, we will exploit this whirling conceptual spiral of orientation, mismatches, analyses, synthesis, reorientation, mismatches, analysis, synthesis, so that we can comprehend, cope with, and shape as well as be shaped by that world and the novelty that arises out of it. And I think that the, the thing there, the reward for someone who gets ahead of a situation is that you, you're able to shape what happens to you. And also the, ex, the challenges that come tomorrow is that you're able to shape those challenges. And that for me is, the, is the, 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 black level, the black belt level stuff of how to handle stress is that you're able to choose what stress comes your way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, stress, is, uh, stress is internal. What's stressful for me may not bother you at all. You know, for example, but if you wire me up, you can detect the, uh, uh, the sympathetic nervous system starting to fire up. Uh, then you can really tell what's stressful to, uh, uh, to me. And there are ways to do that. Sympathetic nervous system is not a construct. It's actual nerves, set of nerves in your body. And they can be, uh, they can be accessed and, you can, and we can see and we can, and we can physically measure the changes. They are so debilitating that why would you leave that to chance? If they're really debilitating, give your opponent as much of it as possible, which is what the moral factors, the operating inside the OODA loop, and to some extent, even the physical factors, all are designed essentially to pump up the stress level in, inside the other, the other side to where at some point he begins to come to, begins to, he has to, he has to turn internally to try to deal with that. When he does, you got it. Mm. So. And you know that the thing that I, I particularly love about about your book, Uncertain to Win, is that in a competitive situation, we're trying to stress out our opponent, but in a in a in a situation where we have a customer, we're trying to create positive emotion. We're trying to create delight and surprise, yes. a very positive surprise, which is, oh my God, this is so cool! I've got to tell everybody I've ever met how good this is. Which is, I know, when the iPhone first came out. You couldn't shut up early iPhone users about how great the iPhone was, right? You just you ended up buying one just to shut them up, and then you spent your time saying how great the iPhone was to each other, didn't you? Oh, absolutely! You remember, and it still does. The bottom of each message, the default thing is sent to my iPhone. <laughs> Here we are. What uh, came out? What two thousand nine? No, two thousand seven, wasn't it? Somewhere along in there, I don't remember. But yeah, it's been out a while, and yet it's still. Um, well, Chet, what we've what we've got now, then we're moving on from conceptual spiral to a, an extraordinarily short um, thing called revelation. Yeah, it's just uh, two, basically two sentences, and it's um, I don't really know what to say about it. In a way, it almost seems trite. On the other hand, it's really quite quite profound. It, what it really says is that the essence of Boyd's whole method is creativity under fire. Uh, by groups of people, it's, that's the kind of thing. But it's uh, uh, that's what building snowmobiles and employing them uh, effectively basically means is uh, creativity under fire. So, so as it's as it's so short, let me just let me just read it, and then I wonder if you can then get into what Boyd meant by snowmobiles. Because I know anybody who's who studied boys know what that is. 
Um, but it will, we'll, we'll get into that. And it does link with conceptual spirals. So, so revelation from Boyd is a loser is someone, individual or group, who cannot build snowmobiles when facing uncertainty and unpredictable change. Whereas a winner is someone, individual or group, who can build snowmobiles and employ them in an appropriate fashion when facing uncertainty and unpredictable change. So, so this it's essentially it's a concept, isn't it, of creating snowmobiles from from Boyd's work. I just wondered if you could if you could tell our, our listener just what that meant. Synthesis, as Ali's talking about there, uh, coming up with a, a solution uh, to a problem. Um, and but since people are, are different, the world is always changing. The same solution, uh, you know, won't continue to work forever. If nothing else, people will watch you and learn from it. So no matter how good you are now, uh, if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, you, you train your competition or in conflict, you train your opponents. And this is something that goes with, again, Musashi mentions that, uh, that, that, that same thing from 1645. So uh, the whole idea there is you have to kind of deconstruct it. Now that you kind of know what a snowmobile is, then how do you know you're employing it appropriately? Well, employing is that, is that uh, implicit guidance and control feed from orientation to action for the most part. And appropriately is observing the effects of that, running it, now we're in the circular process, running it back through your orientation and making a decision of essentially how all this is, how all this is going. But it, it's not step by step, it's all continuous, it's all by feel, finger spitzing your food, uh, you know, how's it going kind of thing. and. Uh, and so it's, you build your snowmobile mock, you know, version one, you try it, you learn from the result, you build your snowmobile version two, and not only are you building better snowmobiles, but you're also rewiring your brain as to what works and what, and, and uh, what doesn't, um, and, and, and what breaks when it gets out into the mud and the snow and all that kind of good stuff. And he says, people that can do that, um, when other people are shooting at them, and he's re that's really kind of what he's talking about in the Revelation. Uh, those are the winners. They'll figure out a way to win. They will keep. They will keep at it. They'll keep coming at you. Keep coming at you with stuff you don't expect uh, until they finally get you. If you're in the loser category, the one who can't build these snowmobiles and uh, they can't understand what's going on and come up with new uh, ways of, of dealing with the situation. Again, think of Afghanistan, you know, who learned and who didn't, who kept coming at it and who didn't sort of thing. Okay, so a couple of questions is, first case, you got a snowmobile because the problem that you were trying to solve was mobility over the snow. Uh, suppose you're trying to solve some other problem. Then can you can you pick different parts out? And the answer is, well, probably not. If the, if the problem is really quite a bit different, like how do I go vertical up the side of a building? Then you may need to look around and get and and start ripping parts off of of some other things. Uh, so there's clearly two two functions involved. Well, three actually. The first is having the parts. The second is disassociating those parts from where they originally were so that you can now see them in a new context. That when you think of treads, for example, you don't always think of tanks because then you'll never get to a snowmobile if every time you see a tread, you think of a tractor, for example. Um, so you gotta be able to think of what the tread really is as a way of going over rough, uh, you know, muddy or whatever terrain. Um, and uh, yeah, that's kind of snowmobile. And you know, that's, so, so you wanna be able to understand the components outside of their original domains. And then you put something together and go try it, come back, fix it, maybe go out and get some more parts, do it together, try it, go fix it. 
and uh, and that's going through that conceptual spiral, you know, technology engineering loop. Um, and if you're in a competitive situation, it's not so much that you go through the loop faster than anybody else, it's you, that you get to a workable solution quicker because you can't rush the orientation, orientation step. So the speed in there is really how quickly you can understand what worked and what didn't make changes and try the next one is really where the speed is, uh, is coming in. But it's all based on how quickly you can understand. Brilliant. Uh, Brilliant. That's fantastic. And, and just for, just for our, our listeners, so one of the things that so people who are amazing at, at this concept of creating snowmobiles is if you're old enough, you can remember the A-team. And there was always there was always a part in the show where they had practically nothing and they had a, a hairdryer, a pen um and a wheelbarrow and they made um a bazooka gun out of it in yeah. some way um, i've got one image of them firing cabbages at, at these nasty people um, and then another, another guy is macgyver who's able to take take elements of different things and make them make them into something useful for the mission yeah. that they've got at hand that's basically what we're talking about and the person that can do that the best now put that in terms of organizations now and put in all the interpersonal dynamics that go on inside an organization and that's where that that boyd's climate those four formerly german five formerly german words come into was coming up with an organization that can do that same sort of thing hmm. uh, and not get bogged down in its internal in, internal problems and I'm, I'm just i guess some some colleagues well, i guess there would have been colleagues of of boys really would be the, the amazing scene in the film apollo 13 where they they find a way of making a new air filter i think wasn't it so and they said you you know you've got 90 minutes to, to make this you know we need to have this air filter and and everything else and stuff so that's a that's another example of that but it's really being able to reflect upon your experiences break down them into component elements and then recreate them into something that's going to help you win tomorrow or or even tonight. I can do this while people are, are are shooting at you and doing and do it as groups of groups of people, not just a single individual. Because once you get those interpersonal dynamics, there's group dynamics involved, one or two things will happen. It'll, it'll either reinforce it, people will, will take the ball and run with it, and they'll come up with productive ideas and they'll they'll quickly discard what doesn't work and reinforce the does. That's the Einheit. Or they'll start arguing about I want to do it this way. No, no, you idiot, it should go in this side. But, you know, kind of a thing. And that's entropy. That's that's energy not available for for doing work, for accomplishing the purposes of the audience. And, and sometimes an innovation that a company makes can change the nature of the relationships of people in the organization. right? And that can be one of the things that people people stress about. And that's something thing when I was working in esports, it was one of the things that when the when the game publisher would make changes to the game, it would change the relationship of how the five people interactive on the on the on the the. Um, or in the game, just to want a, a risk of introducing more jargon. Um, so, Chet, we're now on to the strategic game of question mark and question mark. Well, you know, what can I, I say? Interaction and, and, and isolation. His, his contribution to that, I think, was, well, twofold. First was saying, you know, you really can look at strategy and by, by strategy and tactics, it's tactics. Strategy is uh, defined very loosely as what it is you're trying to accomplish, including, including ground rules, don't, don't nuke civilians, for example. And tactics is how you're going to do it. And he said, don't try to take it much, much deeper than that uh, for the purposes of this. But he said, and, and again, he's, he was echoing um, uh, folks like um, Deming, uh, and and Drucker and and the military uh, side all the way back to Sun Tzu, uh, 
uh, chapter 13, particularly of Sun Tzu, that, uh, that interaction with the outside is absolutely critical to uh, what he would later call in, in, in his readings, correcting your orientation. Uh, in other words, if you're going to go through that conceptual spiral, what really powers that conceptual spiral is spotting mismatches, and mismatches by definition are outside the uh, system. And spotting them, uh, sometimes it means overcoming what's happening inside your own organization, which is in, 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 uh, quite often trying to cloud that, uh, particularly if you threaten other people's livelihoods or or their um, or their reputations, or they see their reputations as being threatened because they they predicted A, and all of a sudden you show not A, um, and those are extremely extremely important things. Organizations that figure out ways to do that are the are the ones that uh, you know that survive. Uh, and so the idea there was okay interaction and isolation, and he uh, and 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 then he gives some examples. Uh, I, to me. The most important example he gives is in his moral design for a grand strategy, which is right at the uh, end of it. I'm really not too impressed with his little part right in the middle about operating in a more rapid tempo. Uh, I think, you know, that may well be true. I'm sure it is in the kind of things he was talking about. But as a general rule, just trying to pump up the tempo, uh, more likely to generate entropy than it is to uh, to solve it. What you want to do is, is keep your orientation better matched to reality. There is obviously a speed element in that. Uh, and there are times when you want to throw things at, the, at, at, at an opponent faster than they can handle, just because, as, as Richard Gere said in the movie Chicago, given the old razzle-dazzle, just as a tactic to, con to confuse them. But when we're in... When we're in business, you have to be much more careful. It's not clear, for example, that uh, that coming out with, well, for example, if you're Samsung, Samsung tried a thing a few years ago where they would introduce their Galaxy, whatever phone, a month or two, months, six weeks before the new iPhones came out, and everybody said, "Yeah, that's nice. We're going to wait and see what Apple comes out with." And <laughs> just all right. Well, that's nice. People didn't rush to buy the Samsung product just because it was first to market. Um, so that's it's you can't be dogmatic about these things. And I think in in a strategic game, the idea there is you have to have mechanisms to keep you interacting with the outside world. And essentially, that's what that last section, that the moral design for grand strategy, and it gives it to you at the physical, mental, and moral levels. Uh, and at the mental level, he makes uh, he that operating inside the other side's OODA loop will produce isolation will isolate them mentally and, and also will have moral and, and physical implications. And he explains why in there. He talks about what uh, moral interaction is and what moral isolation is. Moral isolation is very interesting. You cannot isolate some another side morally. What you can do is essentially hand them rope and watch them hang themselves with it by pointing out where uh, the inconsistencies between what they say they do and what they actually do. And of course, if you watch out in the real world, that game is played all the, all the time, particularly um, in politics. But you cannot morally isolate the other side, but you can give them a lot of opportunities to isolate themselves. And then when they do, you can give them a lot of, uh, a lot of visibility. But there are things you can do to mentally and physically isolate them. So it's a lot of that stuff is tacked on at the end of strategic games. So it's a fascinating, fascinating briefing. I encourage all of your... Uh, all of your listeners, your podcast, you, you, um, to do so it. Just as a as a summary, then the key so that 
the strategic game of of something and something really which is what it was and what Boyd talks about is it it's a strategic what is strategic the strategic game is one where that where it promotes interaction for you that promotes vitality and growth and right. isolation for your opponent which leads to decay and disintegration now if it's just you then one thing you need to be focused on in what ways do your behavior improve the quality and nature of the interactions you have with others with your customers with with family and friends um, and what is it that causes in you isolation? And I think that's one of the things that's that's really relevant right now because so many of us are feeling isolated. And if you look at, I mean, just recently, the, the Australian government and, and the, the New Zealand government came out with instructions to their people to literally ignore their neighbours um, and to not interact with them and to not speak with them and to be totally isolated in their houses, which would go against basically every every form of, of psychological and also you know moral and mental positive interaction um so i guess really it's it's in whatever geography you're in wherever you're listening to this is how can you promote healthy interaction with others and and with what with the things that matter in your environment but so to just to just one of the conclusions that, um that boyd makes in the in the the presentation is if we want to in, improve interactions it says it's physical mental and moral and it says, physically, we interact by opening up and maintaining many challenge channels of communication with the outside world, hence with others out there that we depend upon for sustenance, nourishment or support. And mentally, we interact by selecting information from a variety of sources or channels in order to generate mental images or impressions that match up with the world of events or happenings that we are trying to understand and cope with. And then morally, we interact with others by avoiding mismatches between what we say we are what we are and the world we have to deal with, as well as by abiding by those other cultural codes or standards that we are expected to uphold. And he says the art of success, which given the name of the podcast, it would be wrong of me not to say this, is to shape or influence the moral, mental, physical atmosphere that we are part of, live in and feed upon so that we are not only magnify our inner spirit and strength, but also influence potential adversaries and current adversaries, as well as the uncommitted, so they are drawn towards our philosophy and are empathic towards our success, which I think is a wonderful intro to, to Boyd's grand strategy, isn't it, really? It is, and that's the uh, that's sort of what Boyd is, is all about. There's basically his, his uh, not his definition of grand strategy, but that is his description of what a good grand strategy should do. And I think that's that's exactly right. So you can think of, in, even in this environment now, uh, if every, if your company is having a you know an, an isolation sort of thing, then everybody should be isolated. The, the CEO should be working from home as well as everybody else. Um, and uh, if if you're having people allowing people to go back in the office, then that sh however you do that should be seen as a way to build a, to build unity. Everybody does it the same the same way. And uh, so I think that's so that you don't have this. And we've seen this all the time where it's, you know, do as the, do as the CEO says, not as the CEO does. That's moral isolation right there. And of course, it completely destroys cohesion within the company. Not that the companies, uh, those kind of companies are particularly worried about cohesions. If you believe they'll just hire somebody else kind of thing. And, and that works OK until a smarter competitor comes along. Um, and I think we've, we've seen that that replacement cycle several times now within our lifetimes and uh, first in perhaps automobiles and then uh, in uh, information systems um, just to just to name a couple um, of the world of retail you know uh, you know the Sears Sears I think is still around but the Sears Tower hasn't been the Sears Tower for many 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 years 
which is one of the things that bothered me about Apple's new campus. To me, it looked like a, a very high-tech, very, uh, a very zen-like Sears Tower. And uh, when companies start building magnificent, uh, magnificent headquarters uh, uh, buildings, the alarms should go off all over the place. And that's another Tom Petersism, by the way. Anyway, uh, yeah, so I think you know that's the that's a very good, and that's from that section we talked about there, mold design for grand strategy at the end of strategic game. Uh, which again, I think is very important and well worth well worth uh, those those two pages, isolation and interaction, well worth uh, pondering. Instead, because those are things that any any organization, business, military, sports, political, whatever, can uh, can use. This has been the Art and Science of Success. I'm Jonathan Brown. If you want to learn more about the topics we've discussed today, be sure to visit alppartners.com where you'll find the show notes and other resources. And if you join our community there, you'll get access to even more battle-tested ideas to help you create success for yourself and your organization. You can also arrange a free call to explore how we can help you accelerate learning and performance in your organization. If you enjoyed this show, be sure to subscribe. And if you have a minute, pop over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to give us a positive rating. Thanks for listening.